0: Good morning, welcome back to the program. Imagine a nation at war for a long period of time, a financial crisis, Congress divided, bitter partisanship, battles over taxation and the role of banks and corporations. You'd think we were talking about America today. In fact, it was also the America of its birth, a time when the quest for independence ran headlong into political reality. And there were those who thought that the revolution and change had gone too far. We're going to talk about this today with my guest, David Leffer. David Leffer is a writer, historian, and a professor at New York University's Polytechnic Institute. He directs the Innovation and Technology Forum, and it is my pleasure to welcome him here to the program to talk about the founding conservatives, how a group of unsung heroes saved the American Revolution. David Leffer, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure to be here.
0: It's great to have you here. I think we should start out by talking about that the kind of conservatism we're talking about is, is essentially small-c conservatism, conservatism that comes out of, out of the British tradition in this case, and that really is about not going too far and in preserving institutional integrity.
1: I'm not sure if they would... The the problem with using the word conservative, which I do in the book, is that the word actually didn't exist at the time. However, uh, if you look at every history of conservatism, uh, they all agree that conservatism was founded in the late 18th century. The difference in my book is that, uh, while almost every other book on the history of conservatism says that it started with a British statesman named Edmund Burke, who attacked the French Revolution, I discovered that pretty much everything Burke said and stood for had previously been said by this group of uh, American founding fathers who were have been largely forgotten by history and they do trace their roots back to uh similar sources in English history but um in English politics but there are some some major differences between the British sort of conservatism and the American sort and one little fact I love is that If you look at the Oxford English Dictionary, the the dictionary for the English language, it says that the first use of the word conservatism was in 1830 in England. It turns out that Americans actually coined the word a couple of decades earlier, in 1809, a uh, Massachusetts Federalist used the word. So people largely agree that conservatism was founded in in the late 18th century, but my argument is that Americans actually created it before the British.
0: And talk a little bit about what the essential components were of this American conservatism?
1: You know, I, I, I think I'll approach that question, which is a good one, um, about with the story of how I actually came about writing the book. And a stu- I used to tutor high school students in American history. And one of my students one day said, who is John Dickinson? And that's, a, you know, every time a professor's asked the question that you're not sure the answer of, you panic a little bit. And <laughs> I reached back in my memory and I just said, oh, yes, I know. remembered what i'd read in all the high school textbooks john dickinson wrote the letters from a farmer in pennsylvania and she looked at me and said yeah i know that's what it says in all the textbooks who was he and i had to admit i didn't know more than that so i went to the library i discovered there was only one book written about him in the whole 20th century and it was called john dickinson conservative revolutionary and that made me pause and i thought well how can you be conservative and a revolutionary at the same time and what's struck me as I started doing research on this book is that American conservatives actually have a very strong revolutionary strain within them. So while British conservatism is actually far more staid and uh, hidebound, American conservatism is actually far more dynamic. And one of the things these Sounding Fathers did, these unsung heroes, as I call them in the uh, subtitle, is that they combined ancient traditions of republicanism, stretching all the way back to the world of of the ancient world, of ancient Greeks and Romans, and they combined a more modern force that came into the world in the 16th century, and that was capitalism. So American conservatives really embraced a far more dynamic style of capitalism than British conservatives did, and that was a crucial part of their message and a crucial reason why there was so much conflict between left and right during the American Revolution.
0: It almost makes that kind of conservatism what we would consider today a kind of radicalism at the time.
1: There were definitely radicals in the American Revolution, and they were the radicals were in the sense left-wing in the sense that they wanted to change society. There were huge new forces basically opened up in American society during the Revolution, and one of the largest is was the force for equality. And it used to be a much more hierarchical society. Um, There were calls on the left. There were calls, for example, for price controls for everything. Merchants obviously opposed these. There were calls for limiting the amount of wealth that anyone could, could possess in America, and this came very close to passing in the Pennsylvania uh, legislature. And conservatives at the time really blocked almost all of these efforts. They said, you know, not only is it bad for the merchant classes and the upper classes to have price controls, it's actually bad for the economy as a whole, um, they also opposed limiting the amount of wealth. They believed that liberty was, was far more important than equality for everyone. So back then, I would actually say they were not very radical um, because capitalism had been around for a couple of hundred years at this point, and it was a major part of British, the British economy and political structure. And so really, what the founding conservatives wanted to do was keep as much of the old British system as possible. The parts that worked and they were willing to jettison those parts that didn't work, and largely it's because they saw that they had to if they wanted to stay in power in America.
0: One of the things that they did as well, as you talk about, was at least tried for a time to delay any kind of armed conflict. Talk about that.
1: Right. And that's one of the most fascinating things, and one of their, one of the first most important contributions they made to the revolution. Um, radicals really wanted to push for independence from England as rapidly as possible. I mean, there, there's, uh, you know, some, some, some people say that Sam Adams was interested in independence as far back as the late 1760s, some say it was, you know, a little later, but radicals led by Sam Adams and by the um, Richard Henry Lee in Virginia really wanted to push for independence far quicker, and a lot of the lower classes, not all, but a lot of them in America were quick to embrace this also because they saw getting rid of the English power structure as a way for them to get far more political power. And conservatives said, okay, in theory, they were not opposed to independence by 1776. What they opposed was a rush to independence. You know, conservatism at its heart is and should be about prudence and careful thinking before you act. And they said, America has no army, we have no weapons, we have no gunpowder, we have no government, we have no money, we don't have have any foreign alliances, and they said, until America is ready to stand up to England, the most powerful military machine in the entire world, we're going to not only lose the war, but if we lose the war at this stage, we're going to lose all hope of protecting American rights. So the founding conservatives were not against independence, they were against a mad rush to it without careful consideration.
0: Talk about what their vision was for what the country would look like. How did they see it emerging from this revolution?
1: They had a very different view from, from the left. They saw America as a land of, in the, ultimately, a very powerful nation of, uh, of incredibly, that was incredibly rich, that was militarily strong. Um, they, they proposed having a strong standing army. A, they were very pro-military as opposed to the left. They proposed having large-scale capitalism. Uh, Robert Morris, one of my main characters who I write about, founded the first bank in the United States. He founded the first multinational corporation. And they really wanted to preserve the British tradition of large-scale corporations um, because they actually, as they saw it, and the British had seen it for about 100 years at that point, capitalism won wars. And they said, if we are not a strong nation financially and militarily, we'll just be at the prey of uh, any European power that wants to come in, split us apart, digest us and destroy us. And they said, for America to become a strong nation, we need to really embrace um, the old structures of capitalism and power that European countries had been doing very well up to that point.
0: To what extent did this play into this effort to bring the French in to help?
1: The French... A foreign alliance was absolutely crucial in order to win, win the war and de- defeat the British because America, as I said, had no... Uh, you know, George Washington, for example, actually put sand in his gunpowder powder barrels outside uh, the siege of Boston because he didn't want people to realize just how little gunpowder he had because he said all the soldiers would just um, mutiny or, or run away, basically. America was terribly unequipped to, to fight the British. And it was really only with French help that uh, America was able to win the war. Um, as I say in the book, radicals were much more eager to go to war. They really thought it would be a very short, painless conflict that the British would just pack up and leave. And it was the conservatives who said, this is going to be a long, drawn-out battle. I mean, the American Revolution, I think, until the war in Iraq, was the longest war in American history. Um, so they, were really, they really needed French support and So they sent um, Silas Dean, uh, I tell the story of Silas Dean, who really almost single-handedly secured French support um, with the help of the playwright uh, Beaumarchais, who wrote The Marriage of Figaro. And they had a very, very funny, uh, interesting relationship, um, mainly because Beaumarchais spoke no English and Dean spoke no French, and yet they managed to really almost together save the American Revolution with thousands of tons of gunpowder, um, French officers, French weapons, French cannons. I mean, without any of these, and, and all of these shipments arrived just in time for the crucial Battle of Saratoga. And um, once, once that was secured, France, always, only then was France willing to openly declare itself an ally of, of the new United States, or Les Treize Colonies, uh, uh, as they called them in France.
0: Among those that wanted to do too much too quickly. Talk a little bit about what the countervailing arguments were.
1: You know, Sam Sam and John Adams really led the effort from Boston to push for independence very quickly. And part of it was that almost the entire beginning of the revolution happened in Massachusetts. It was really a fight between Massachusetts and Boston and England. And Massachusetts was traditionally seen as the most democratic of all the colonies. I mean, you had people in New York saying, we despise New Englanders. Um, They they thought it was far too democratic, far too egalitarian. And um, so the New Englanders really felt isolated in many ways. And they said, we're engaged in this war with England basically by ourselves, and there's no way New England by itself could defeat England. And they realized it had to be a continental effort. They had to get all the colonies, if they had hoped to have any chance of, of preserving themselves against English power. So as John Adams saw it, I mean, he called Massachusetts his country, and in many respects the colonists back then saw their own colonies as their own countries rather than I mean, as Americans as a whole, that was, and that lasted well until after the Revolution. Um, for Adams, it was almost a matter of life and death for his country, for Massachusetts to get the rest of America uh, to side with him and to oppose England.
0: One of the things you talk about is the concerns also that were expressed, particularly by John and Edward Rutledge, about the South and their concerns. Talk about mm-hmm.
1: that. The uh, what, one of the most fascinating things in the book was is that conservatives do not always agree with each other, and I'm sure even modern day conservatives would agree that there are some parts of the Republican Party platform they agree with, some they don't. But they were all conservatives in 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 their overall approach to managing change, in their approach to capitalism, or their embrace of capitalism. But John and Edward Rutledge were different from the Northern Conservatives in that they really were very hesitant to, um, to embrace a powerful government. Uh, the Northern Conservatives were actually far more, interest- far more supportive of a large, powerful government at the time, mainly because they just assumed that they would control it. So they thought if they created a powerful central government, they would be the ones in charge and they could continue to influence American politics in that way the Southerners, because they were um, outnumbered by the North and because they wanted to defend the institution of slavery, felt that they had to be very careful about creating a very powerful central government, mainly because they were the first ones to, to uh, argue that and to realize that in a democracy, they might, that conservatives might not be the ones to always control the central government. And because they had their own sectional interests, Including slavery, that they wanted to defend, they were very, very hesitant to uh, support a strong central government. John and Edward Rutledge were also some of the most amazing characters in the book. Uh, they basically single-handedly saved South Carolina um, from from the British. Uh, the British actually took over Charleston in 1780. It was the second major American city to be lost after New York, and uh, basically all Rutledge over his own protests, was forced to leave the city by his general, saying, you have to get out, we're about to, you know, we're about to be taken over by the British. And so he escaped just in the nick of time, and then the British controlled a large part of the state, and John Rutledge, as the governor, basically was a single man, a one-man government in exile, and he raised money, raised troops, raised gunpowder, and basically developed this uh, strategy of harassing the British, which ultimately bled them dry in the state.
0: How had these conservative ideas and these conservatives that that you've researched and are talking about, how did their political influence and their ideas continue to play out after the
1: revolution? Probably, in in one word, the United States, well, in three words, the United States Constitution. And they were largely responsible for writing large parts of it and then in um, getting it passed through the states that were very reluctant. Uh, the Constitution, in many respects, is a very conservative document. So not only did they help shape it, um, and, and many of them, from James Wilson to Governor Morris uh, to John Dickinson, who I write about, they, they wrote large parts of the Constitution. In fact, most of the Constitution was written by by these men. J- James Madison obviously deserves a lot of... Uh, of um, credit for coming up with the initial outlines of it, but the details were really conservative, and, and one of the most fascinating things I discovered was the actual writing of the Constitution was assigned to uh, Governor Morris of New York, and uh, Morris was, uh, was the assistant financier of the United States, so he was responsible one of the main conservatives running the economy, and he really saw the document as, as a necessary bulwark to protect American business interests. So he was given the task of writing the Constitution after the end of the convention. They had spent four months debating it, and they gave him all, his, all the notes, and he basically um, wrote it up, and he streamlined it. He cut down the number of articles tremendously. He um, cleaned up the language to make sure it didn't sound like it was actually written by lawyers. So it's actually a very beautifully written document. Um, the preamble, uh, it was written by him, for example. And one of the things he started doing was he started inserting little additions, some of which were caught, some of which were not, to further the cause of American conservatism and American business. Uh, For example, he basically just inserted the contract clause into the Constitution. That was not caught, but it turned out to be one of the most important additions he could make. Uh, Some of his... Some of his um, additions were caught and changed, and he was chastised for that. Uh, For example, Jefferson's uh, future Secretary of the Treasury, Albert Gallatin, uh, called some of his changes in grammar and uh, additions a trick. Um, But when he added the contract clause, which which basically provided that no state could impair the obligation of contracts, it was a major victory for American business, and really prevented uh, the government from going in and uh, interfering with private contracts, which they had done during the revolution.
0: Talk about that broader framework, because this is something you, you've come back to repeatedly, the, this focus on, one, the economy in general, but more specifically, aiding and abetting business along the way.
1: Mm-hmm. The, the conservatives really saw businesses not... Uh, the government is not necessarily an enemy to business they, they they were very against government regulations of business and because there had been a lot of interference on the part of radicals in uh, in business and private contracts during the revolution with price controls and uh, basically just seizing property and conservatives really wanted to you know a lot of them saw this as as just as bad as the english and they said we've joined this revolution in order to fight because the British were trying to seize our property unjustly, and we 're not going to put up with it if uh, Americans do it either, so it was very important for them to protect business and they saw so they, they did not uniformly attack government they saw government as potentially very threatening if it interfered with private contracts at the same time they thought they saw the american the, the constitution and the the federal government as a way of actually boosting business in order to again um, become a powerful rival to Europe and even more powerful ultimately, which is how they saw the United States in the future as, as even more powerful than European countries. They, they realized that the United States government had to, had to help um, business any way it could from in the form of uh, grants or monopolies um, or in the form of protecting them from, from you know, foreign, other foreign businesses. So they really saw government as a potential ally if they could control it for business
0: and how did they see that lining up with small d democracy
1: they were very reluctant to to embrace democracy mainly because well for one one thing it was a uh, totally new uh, it was new and very old at the same time you know democracy really had not been tried 2000 years and so it was a great experiment that was happening and they were very hesitant to embrace any change that they thought might lead to social chaos so Ultimately, democracy was something they realized they could not hold back. That these forces had been unleashed in American society, and they had to um, they had to come to terms with it. Um, you know, just like conservatives today, they were facing a uh, basically a demographic time bomb. The, the the lower classes had never had the right to vote before, and so it was a radical new change in American society. This these new groups of voters, which could could now, you know, keep them from, from winning elected office. So they had really had to, to craft a new strategy that embraced the new type of uh, electorate and to appeal to them in a new way. They couldn't. In a, previously, the upper classes would just say, "We are, your betters, better, social better, so you should vote for us." And people did. Now suddenly, people who were, you know, um, carpenters and cordwainers and all sorts of professions that had never had uh, any sort of political voice, were now demanding not only the right to vote, but the right to run for office. And conservatives in the 1780s saw they were now losing, losing out to people who were their social inferiors. And the way they crafted their message was, again, through prosperity. They said, we will bring prosperity far more than the left will. Um, and the way they did that was through capitalism. And they said, if you embrace our vision of large-scale free market capitalism as opposed to price controls and a far more egalitarian society. Everyone will be better off in the end. So it was really an appeal to, and I I think that's a lesson for conservatives today. Conservatives today um, have to craft a message that appeals to a far broader and different spectrum of voters than it has in the past.
0: They were really arguing trickle-down economics of their day.
1: In many ways, yes. Yes, and they were the 1%. Um, obviously, there were rich people on the left also. I mean, Sam Adams, John Adams, Richard Henry Lee, they, they were quite wealthy themselves. So, you know, as today, again, you know, your financial status does not determine your political party. But if you look at these founding conservatives, they, while not a coherent political party, they definitely were all political allies and routinely voted together and routinely attacked the radical, radical proposals of the day.
0: To what extent did they really learn the lesson, though, of the revolution, that, that adapting to change was critical?
1: Um, some did and some did not. Most of the founding conservatives, um, as I described in my epilogue, did become federalists. And the federalists basically forgot one of the essential lessons that conservatives had learned during the revolution, which was that adapt, you must adapt to change or risk irrelevance. Um, but not all did. Um, you, have John, you have Robert Livingston, who became one of the richest men in America. He teamed up with um, Robert Fulton, and they created one of the most powerful and influential uh, technological monopolies in American history. I mean, it probably was the Microsoft or Google of its day. Um, they, they created the, whole, the first steamship monopoly, which really helped open up the entire nation to, um, to travel and exploration. And Livingston was one of the first to realize um, the importance of Of adapting as best as as conservatives could. And his advice to conservatives was they must yield to the torrent if they hope to direct its its, its course. And what he was saying was change is coming and we better adapt to it because if we just drop out and oppose all change, we're going to be left in the dust like the loyalists because there were many Americans who wanted to side with England. And they essentially became irrelevant to American history at that point. Um, And... So he actually became a Democratic-Republican, uh, which was Jefferson's party, and he really helped infuse uh, these principles of capitalism into a party that had traditionally been far more radical and left-leaning and making it far more inclusive. And the person I really you know, started off telling you about, John Dickinson, who got me into this, this, writing this project, he too became a Democratic conservative. Uh, sorry, a, he became a Democratic Republican, and again tried to direct the course of of more left-leaning thought and make it more traditional and um, prudent.
0: Were you surprised as you got into this project the the way in which so many of these debates and issues of the time have relevance to some of the some of the political debate today?
1: I was, and in fact, in a number of interviews I've done, people have asked me for the lessons that the founding conservatives can provide to today's conservatives. And, uh, you know, I guess originally I was I wanted to stay out of that and just say, you know, my mind has basically been in the 1770s and 1780s for so long, I, I can't really address what's going on today. But, you know, as you think about it, it is really remarkable. And as you started, you know, as you introduced the book in the beginning, the founding conservatives, you, you described how there was endless war. There was a Congress so dysfunctional, you know, it just was so deadlocked, it didn't function for years on end. Uh, There were, you know, anger at banking and debate over taxation. So it's remarkable how, how much their world was like ours, which was one of the compelling factors which made me want to write the book, because most histories of the American Revolution present the founders as this monolithic cohorts you know all marching in lockstep toward independence and really these were flesh and blood human beings like us they like us they were politically divided they hated each other they, at times they you know there was open warfare between left and right at times in the streets of Philadelphia there were there were riots and battles between uh, gun battles between left and right and fortunately we're not there to we're not that bad today But these were real human beings responding to to a situation and a society that is a a lot like ours today. I mean, obviously, things change a lot in 200 years. Mm -hmm. But uh, I I like this idea that it it, it makes the Founding Fathers seem far more appealing to me that these were flesh-and-blood human beings acting like us.
0: Who among the Founding Conservatives, in your view, provided the kind of intellectual heft to the movement?
1: I'd probably say John Dickinson. He was the most eloquent and the best writer of, of them all, although there are many brilliant minds among them. Um, John Dickinson, as I said, I knew nothing about him before starting this project, and then I discovered this book about him. and I found out, for example, he was the second most famous American in the entire world after Ben Franklin. Um, he was called the penman of the American Revolution, and his own contemporaries said that had it not been for Dickinson, the fight against British oppression and the fight for American rights really would not have progressed very far. He almost single-handedly kept Americans worked up uh, about the potential danger of British abuses, and he uh, really led the, the protest movement for the first few years. What's fascinating about him, for example, is that at the start of the revolution, uh, he was probably the leader of American radicalism, in the sense that he was he was one of the, the prime voices uh, attacking the British. And by the summer of 1776, he was the leader of American conservatism. And it's not that Dickinson changed any of his principles; it's that America basically spun around him, and he stood still. Uh, so as the, the you know, it, it, basically, my argument is that it, conservatism was founded at the moment of independence. So you basically had a broad spectrum. You had people who wanted independence right away. You had those who were unsure, and you had those on the far right, you know, the reactionary right, people who don't want any change, who want to turn back the clock, who were utterly aligned with the English. And when independence happened, the, the extreme right just dropped off. They sided with the British. So the patriot side now, basically those who had been the moderates, were now considered the extreme right wing at this point. And that side, the former moderates, were now led by Dickinson. And he, for example, um, he probably, had he been a little more amenable toward independence in 1776, again, he was not theoretically opposed to it. He just wanted America to be better prepared. But, you know, the uh, scholar Forrest MacDonald, a very famous historian and political thinker, said that had Dickinson probably would have been chosen over Jefferson to write the Declaration. And it would have been a very different Declaration of Independence. It probably, Instead of appealing to natural rights, it would have appealed to um, British law, um, history, and probably to biblical precedent as well. Um, so Dickinson was a very fascinating figure. And so that same week that he he basically had a, a showdown with John Adams on the floor of Congress uh, in incredibly hot, humid weather, um, and he basically outlined on July 1st, 1776, the reasons to oppose independence and basically saying, we're just not ready yet. And he saw after the vote, there was a, there was sort of a early vote, a non-binding vote, and he saw that the majority of colonies, but not all, would vote for independence. And he said to himself, if I continue to oppose independence, Pennsylvania will vote against independence. Pennsylvania was the richest, most populous colony in the whole, all of America. And if I swing... Pennsylvania against independence, that will destroy the movement from the start. And he put his patriotism, basically, before his politics. And he didn't want to compromise himself. He didn't want to go against his conscience, which felt that they were rushing a little bit too fast. And so, But instead of voting against independence, he abstained. And that, to me, was an act of real political wisdom and of patriotism. Because Congress, basically, the next day, voted in favor of independence. And it's not that Dickinson then went over to the British, as many people did. He actually picked up his gun, and he was a colonel of an American regiment, and he marched off to New York City to help to join George Washington's forces, where the British had just landed and were about to invade the city. So even though he was, you know, uh, his conscience troubled him, he, he put, uh, you know, he picked up his sword as well as his pen to defend the defend the United States. That same week, that same turbulent week, he somehow found the time to write up the first draft of the Articles of the Confederation, which was America's first government. And uh, it was a very, his his vision of the American government was far more like the Constitution um, than it eventually became. And it, Was The very first article actually stated the the legal name of the United States. He basically said that the name of this new country shall be the United States of America. So he, Dickinson legally christened this nation.
0: David Leffer, the book is The Founding Conservatives, How a Group of Unsung Heroes Save the American Revolution. David, I thank you so much for spending time with us today.
1: I appreciate it. Thanks very much.
0: Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.